Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our TOSIC Phase I and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Stephanie Thomas, director of the Cleveland Clinic Children's Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Program. She's here today to talk to us about that program. So welcome, Stephanie. Hi. So maybe just start out, give us a little bit of background on what's your role here at Cleveland Clinic. So I'm a pediatric oncologist. Uh, I take care of children clinically of all ages. Um, I'm part of both the leukemia and lymphoma program at the Children's Hospital and the solid tumor program. So I know Dr. Shepard well through our uh, shared sarcoma patients. Yeah. In addition to that, I do our quality improvement and run our adolescent and young adult program. So I get to do a bunch of different stuff and have some different hats, which is a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, today we're going to talk about the Adolescent Young Adult Cancer Program. So maybe to start, um, what is it and what are, we, what are we accomplishing here? So AYA has become, or Adolescent and Young Adult, which I will call AYA for the remainder of this podcast, has become really a national movement um, since the 2000s. And it started because there appeared to be a lack of survival improvement in this age range, 15 to 39 year olds, compared to children. And especially those 15 to 21 or 26 year olds that are traditionally treated or can be treated at a children's hospital, people were wondering why is it this age range not getting the same improvements that we're seeing in younger children. So the reason AYA developed on a national stage is really because of that. And then that led to a whole other host of research that was done in this area. And some of the biggest things that we found, I think we all inherently know, this population, especially the um, late teens, early adults up into their 20s, are really um, finding themselves. They're more concerned about fertility and, and making partnerships and having families they're uh, going through education, they're not as financially secure. And so we realized that this population needs to be supported in a different way. And what was so hard is that this age range gets cancers that are more pediatric typic versus also adult. So I, um, in the children's hospital, have seen you know, 13 or 14 year olds with colon cancer. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't know what to do with this. I'm, and I'm calling over to my adult colleagues and they're helping me out. And then we have, you know, 30 or 40 year olds that are um, diagnosed with Wilms tumor or nephroblastoma. And our adult colleagues are like, oh, shoot, we don't know what to do with this. And so they're calling us. And so it, it's this um, strange age range where the, the patients don't necessarily fit age wise into where the diagnosis is typically treated. So how do we support them developmentally and give them the resources that they need so that they can be treated by experts in their field and get their expert treatment where their expert treatment is, but then support them um, socially to make sure that they get all the other services that they need. Big picture tend to be more of a biologic difference, do we think, or is it more delivery of care, a little bit of both? I think it's a little bit of both. So I think some of their, there are definitely biologic differences. And I think the um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia population, we see that the really classically um, where there are different genomic differences as people age. And so, the, and those genomic differences in their cancer makes their 
their cancer more difficult to treat. So I think um, in certain subtypes of cancers, there is genomic differences. I do think a lot of it, though, is health delivery um, and health services. I think when you talk to teens and young adults, especially with solid tumors, they'll tell you stories of how they went back and forth and back and forth to their doctor or more traditionally different providers, urgent cares, because they don't typically have a medical home at that age and they don't have someone that will follow them up routinely. So that lack of medical home and the fact that you just don't think of a healthy 20 year old guy coming into your clinic, having cancer as like even a possibility makes your diagnoses delayed based on our research and then where those patients are treated. So most AYAs, you know, it's a rare cancer population. It's about 70,000 new AYA diagnoses per year, about 5% of the total cancer population in this country. Because of that, those patients should probably be treated at bigger centers because those cancers are usually rare, or at least should it have maybe like an opinion from a bigger center. Because I, I firmly believe you treat patients where their needs are met the most. And we know that patients that are treated in the community, because these cancers are so rare, they sometimes don't get the, the same type of support they would get at a bigger center. And so where, where that patient is treated, and I'm not talking pediatric versus adult, that's a whole other like big argument, which I think can get kind of silly and out of hand, but just making sure that those patients are seen by experts in their field is really important. It doesn't always happen. And so a lot of it's experts in their field for their disease type, for instance, you mentioned you know, colon cancer. Exactly. So you'll reach out to the adults. And certainly if I have a rhabdomyosarcoma, I reach out to you guys. I think that's key. But there's another episode of our, our podcast series I'm, I, that I talked to Dr. Truco about clinical trials, early phase trials, and sort of how children are getting involved more. With this particular population, the AYA population, uh, what makes most sense? They kind of bridge pediatrics and adults. Does it make sense, particularly given some possible biologic differences, to have specific AYA clinical trials? I think there are. And I think, um, you know, again, I think leukemia did a really nice job with this where there are specific AYA trials. Basically, the adult cooperative group was able to take what the pediatric trial is and, and make it so that adults can go on those trials too. The pediatric protocol is more intense, and so it you know needed some changes, but it really seemed to help this AYA population, um, and it was made directly for that group. I think what else is just super important and has been happening more recently is NCTN, or the National Clinical Trials Network, there is this huge push to actually work together, which I know sounds like this should have been happening all the time. But for example, there have been cooperative group studies that have been co-sponsored by COG or Children's Oncology Group, and then one of, the, one of the adult cooperative groups. And it's been really awesome to see how in uh, non-rhabdo soft tissue sarcoma, for example, there was a very nice study. Germ cell tumors have had cooperative group studies now that are going across the pediatric and the adult age range. And the germ cell study goes from birth until, you know, like 50, 60 years old. So anyone can enroll on those studies. And because they're co-sponsored, you keep the enrollment at your own institution, which is also really nice. So you don't have to send the patient somewhere else for them to get enrolled onto a study. Because I think that has been a big holdup for a long time of like, even though COG studies and sarcoma, for example, have really allowed enrollment up to age 30 for a long time now, the patients haven't been able to enroll in those studies because patients aren't treated at COG sites. 
So now you can be treated at an Alliance site and be able to enroll on a co-sponsored study that takes patients all the way from birth until when they naturally don't have that disease anymore, which has been really nice. And that is new, that is very new. And, it, it is, and that is not reflective in the data that shows that there's been a lower enrollment for AYA patients. And I think with that and with now the phase one, like Dr. Truco's focused on allowing younger enrollments down to age 13 or 11 um, on these more uh, for adult drugs, which is also very new, and also allowing in diseases or in drugs that they haven't had adult studies yet, allowing older adults to be enrolled on more of these pediatric studies, I think will really help bridge the gap for this age range. Because I want patients to be treated at their hospital, to be close to their family, to be treated by an expert in their field, and bringing trials to patients for me has always been a, a really big goal. So you mentioned uh, cooperative groups and their ability to sort of be nimble enough to take on AYA issues. How about industry? How about support for investigator-initiated trials? Has there been a similar increase in support for those or is that lagged? It's lagged a little, but in some ways industry especially in decreasing that age range, or I should say the FDA allowing industry to decrease that age range, that has been helpful. Um, I think what's always been a, what's always been difficult about pediatric studies and then and AYA studies, because they're both, both such a small percentage of the cancer pie, as bad as that sounds, is that, that drugs are sometimes developed or are started to be developed, and because they don't look like they're gonna make a lot of money, they get dropped because they really only help with a certain, like a small group of patients. Now, recently with, um, you know, the NTRAC uh, drugs and things that are, again, are usually a, a much smaller population, but have had just really amazing responses. We've been able to see industry really step up and, um, and develop drugs really for these more orphan diseases, which has been a really cool thing to see. So I, I, I feel like the cooperative groups are are real, are trying to push ahead, but industry definitely is there too and in support. All right. We've been talking a lot about the research side because that's what leads to better therapies and knowing kind of what we're supposed to be doing. And maybe a last question on that topic is, I know you've looked in the past about enrollment in clinical trials in this group and how that varies. I, I was, uh, as an adult trialist, always get this sort of jealous sense that on pediatric side, it's easy because, you know, mom and dad said, yes, you're going to do a trial. And then, um, you know, I have to do a little more convincing. And, and the numbers seem a little lower than pediatrics in AYA. So tell me a little bit about that and how we fix that. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that is um, in, as you get older into the AYA age range, especially in your 30s, those numbers look really similar to adults. And, and I don't know what numbers exactly you're talking about, but if you compare to like SEER data and clinical trial enrollment, which isn't the cleanest or probably best way to actually do that, but it, it's about two to 3% of patients enroll on study. Um, and that's similar in the older AYA population than uh, to the adult population. And for kids, it is significantly higher. It's almost like 50%. I do think part of that is possibly because of parents. I think also, Children's Oncology Group in general has made it a really a priority that there basically is a study that's available for almost every single patient. And so availability of clinical trials is something that is, is definitely higher on the pediatric side than on the adult side. And I think that's the same with the AYA population. And I think there are studies available 
nationwide for these patients, but that doesn't mean that they're available at that treating center, which brings into investigator-initiated or pharmaco studies where they're not open at every single center, unlike a children's oncology group study where if you walked into our door or if you walked into a children's hospital in Chicago or a children's hospital in California, we'd all have the same studies that are available to the patient. So it's a little bit like of a different of a culture. And I think it's, it's possible just because the population is so much smaller. In terms of making it better, I think basically connection and communication are your biggest things. I think that I do think industry is working on trying to allow for patients to have easier access to trials at their treating institutions. I think there is a push nationwide to be able to decrease some of the costs associated with opening a trial because I think that's the overhead of opening a trial when you only are going to have one or two patients enroll is not something that is feasible for adult medicine. I think in pediatrics, it's again, we eat a lot of that cost just because we know that's what we do because it's, it's, the populations are just so small. So really, well, it's going to take reform on the trial side. It's going to take reform really on um on how much reimbursement you get to actually put someone onto a study. And it's going to require those cooperative groups or those industry trials to be able to be willing to open up their studies at smaller sites for less cost. So let's switch to sort of the clinical side. You know, everyone that walks in, uh, some people will participate in trials, but everybody needs care. Um, how have you built this program in terms of optimizing available support? I mean, certainly it takes a lot of players. What What is... How does that look on the, in this program? So COVID definitely hit us because all of our plans kind of got pushed back. And so we've, hit, we've now recently started doing things more virtually. But what the goal of this program is, is we, to be meeting every patient that is 15 to 29 that comes into our doors. AYA technically goes up to 39. I think we'll eventually get there. But right now we're, we're working on that more developmental, young adulthood, leaving parents' house type age range. We have developed an AYA resource guide, which we're super excited about, and we can totally share with anyone who is taking care of patients in that age range. We have two virtual support groups that are going on right now, one that is 13 to 17, and then one that is 18 to 29. The 18 to 29 one episode will be running on every third Wednesday at 5.30 p.m., and we can give um, information to any of the physicians that might have patients in that age range. These are for these are for support for patients that are both on um, treatment right now or also in survivorship if they're looking for more su- support. Uh, we are starting some focus groups on what is the best way to build the program and what patients want clinically um, for support. And the the goal really is to meet the patient where they are. So both in terms of physically where they are. So if uh, the patient's over at tossing and they could really, uh, they think they could use some some help or some extra supportive care services, we'll go there. Um, we'll come meet with them. We can talk with them. If you don't want us meeting with them directly, we'll, we can give any type of resources to um, the social workers that are already working with the patient. Um, whatever we can do to support the family and support the physicians and the treatment team. And we will continue to, to really support them along their way. So if at the beginning they're not really interested and then they want to, that's the, then we'll eventually meet with them. The overall goal is to be doing a lot of this stuff in um, person. So we are hoping to really just build community. That's really what our, our big goal is um, in terms of the support. 
to be able to allow patients to feel like they're not alone. I think especially during COVID, AYA patients used to say that they would be sitting alone in the waiting room and they'd look around and they'd be like, oh, all people that are either their parents or their grandparents' age um, that are in the waiting room with them. And so we, we want them to not necessarily have that feeling. And But we also want now during COVID where there is no waiting room anymore, I think it can be even more isolating. And so to try to, to build that community. No, you mentioned building community, and I think that's uh, something that's pretty cool. And maybe just to elaborate on that, you mentioned virtual support groups, but um, I know the, you know, certainly COVID has put a barrier, but um, tell me a little bit more about that building community. You've, um, I, I know that we've had discussions before and you've talked about, you know, things like outings and, you know, activities where people can actually get together with people. And it's something we don't really think about much on the adult side. So that's, uh, that's a totally different way to think. So g- give me a little more info on that. Yeah, so the goal of this is um, to be able to go out, and especially if you have like a partner, if you have kids, to be able to do events where families can meet each other, um, or if you're single, to do events where you can meet other people, and which meaning like go to a baseball game together, do a night at the zoo together. And what we'd like to do is build in skills with it. So we are working on trying to get a virtual art therapy night going where it's about drawing, but going through self-expression and actually using art therapy to kind of work through some of those emotions that you might be going through as part of the cancer experience and utilizing our awesome art therapist. Same with music therapy. The goal is to eventually be able to do that in person. And uh, we did partner with a philanthropic organization called Elephants and Tea. It's a um, AYA cancer magazine, which is really awesome. And we started just last week a virtual happy hour Um, which we're meeting once a month. And um, the next one we're doing, we're going to be playing games at. This we mostly talked about Netflix shows. Um, It's open to anyone in in Cleveland. So we actually partnered with the AYA program over at university hospitals um, and are trying to do this together with them so that, again, since this is such a rare like patient population, we're hoping that this can both allow for more community to be built, but also possibly letting patients know that might be treated at a different hospital in the area, like what resources that we have at Cleveland Clinic and what and in what ways that we might be able to help them here. So um, anything really to strengthen the cancer community in Cleveland. Awesome. Some outstanding initiatives. So you mentioned COVID sort of put a little bit of a barrier in a few things, but this is certainly a tech-savvy group. Have there been actually some advantages in terms of outreach with remote capabilities? Yeah, for example, for our one of our first happy hours, one of my patients was able to log on from her hospital room while she was getting chemo, which definitely would not have been able to happen if this was an in-person event. So the ability to be able to do things wherever you are, there are also more convenient times. Like we were able to start at 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night because a lot of people are working from home and that wouldn't be possible without really the COVID situation. Things would be later. You wouldn't be in the winter in Cleveland going out of your house after 8 o'clock at night is not usually something that people like to do. (laughs) Um, So the virtual platform has been really nice. And clinically, I'm sure you've noticed the virtual platform has been really nice for a lot of our young adult patients where they can maybe get counts checked locally, or they might have like a rash or a question or something that you can see on the screen and you're able to answer those um, in a virtual platform. Or maybe tap into sort of your resources and and knowledge when they're maybe seeing other providers and maybe want to see what your program has to offer. Exactly. So um, how can 
physicians that might be listening, how can they sort of get in touch with your program and how can they have patients benefit from all the great things you're doing? I'm working on getting an email address, but until then, they can get a hold of me via email, which is uh, thomass29 at ccf.org. But um, probably the better person to get a hold of is Allison Himes. She's our program director, um, and her email is himes, A-H-I-M-E-S-A, at ccf.org. Um, and she can get um, anyone in touch with me or with Taylor Buss, who's our social worker, who has all of our um, our resources available and we can send those out to anyone who needs them. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you for all of your great insight today, Stephanie. Um, do you have any additional comments? I think that's it. You know, I, I guess we're looking um, to do these focus groups right now and we're focusing on the pediatric AYA population just because those are the patients we know. But if you have patients that you feel like could give us some insight of how to better support AYAs where they're treated, we'd love to hear from them and we'd love to get their um, names so we can contact them and find out if they'd be interested in talking to us and helping us build this program. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was really great being here. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.